guys can turn to Romans 12, Romans 12. Just to review for a moment, Romans 1 through 11 was all about theology, the theology of God's righteousness. Romans 12 through 16 is all about application, the application of righteousness to your daily life. What does it look like for you as a student or an engineer or a teacher or a mom or a dad or what does it look like to actually live a righteous life? Day to day in concrete terms, what does it look like to live a life that is well-pleasing to God? That's what Romans 12 through 16 is about. Paul lays out in, in concrete steps exactly what it looks like to live a life that pleases God. And we've looked at a, a couple of the steps already last week, the passage right before our passage this morning. Paul looked at this group of people. What does it mean to live a life that is pleasing to God in regards to our relationships with one another? And Paul summarized it in one word, love. We are to genuinely love one another. And remember how God defines love. Biblical love is sacrificial devotion to others. It is not based on an emotion or a feeling. It is based on a choice to sacrifice for the good of other people. That is how we're to treat one another. The world knows we're followers of Christ for our love for one another, for our brothers and sisters in Christ. This week, Paul looks outside of these walls. He looks outside of these walls to ask the question in relationship to how do we relate to the world? How are we to relate to non-Christians? And in particular, how are we to relate to non-Christians who are hostile to us? How are we to respond to a hostile world? That's where Paul is going to go in this passage this week. Now, it was about high school for me. I don't know when it was for you, but it was about high school for me when I became aware of the world's hostility towards those who follow Christ. I remember there was one day in particular uh, in class where my eyes were opened to how the world thinks about me as a follower of Christ. Uh, I was uh, good friends with this uh, very popular, very kind girl who was a non-Christian. And I, I don't want to share her name publicly, so I'll just call her Sarah for the sake of this story. Sarah was kind, but she did not believe in the God of the Bible. And so I prayed for Sarah often. And I, I looked for opportunities to share my faith, but she was really popular. I was not very popular, so I didn't want to risk that relationship. So I often chickened out of sharing my faith. I kind of wanted to be a closet believer around her. But I lost that choice to be a closeted believer on one particular day. Another of our classmates, who was also a non-Christian and was not nearly as kind as Sarah, saw in my friendship with her an opportunity to humiliate me for my faith. You see, this guy knew the Bible well. He knew that the Bible teaches that those who choose to reject the grace that Jesus offers will spend eternity in a place the Bible calls hell. He knew that. He also knew that pretty much the whole school felt that that was a, a really awful thing to believe. Just really offensive thing to believe. And so in class one day, as we're waiting for the teacher to come in, he walks up to Sarah and I as we're talking, and he says in a loud voice that everyone can hear, so Blake, you believe that Sarah's going to hell because she doesn't believe in Jesus, right? Whole class was completely silent. Everyone looking at me, to this day, I can remember the feeling of sweat breaking out across my palm. I can remember the feeling of my gut tightening up. I was so humiliated in that moment. I was so embarrassed. I was so stressed out. It's funny, I can't remember what I said. 
can't remember the words that came out of my mouth because all I can remember is the pain of that moment. He wanted to humiliate me and it worked perfectly. I became the butt of many jokes after that. I was ridiculed for my faith because of that. That was kind of that dawning moment on my adolescent mind when I saw for the first time that we will not be popular in this world if we follow Christ. There's going to be a cost to pay. We will be persecuted. We will be mistreated for our choice to follow Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus actually promised that. I should have known. Jesus kind of guaranteed it. John 15, 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. He promised it. So did Paul. 2 Timothy 3, 12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you follow Jesus in the midst of this hostile world, you will pay a price. You will be mistreated. You will be persecuted in one way or another. Many of you have already experienced that, especially you who are adults. Some of you are professors or teachers or you're involved in academics and you have faced ridicule because of your biblical beliefs. Maybe you've lost a promotion or lost a a job or lost the respect of your peers because of what you believe. Or maybe your business has taken hits or, or you have lost your job because of an ethical stand you took. You refused to compromise on billing practices that everyone else fudged on, but no, you took a stand and so you were shown the door. Many of you have paid a price. Now, some of you are not from America. Some of you come from a country where you pay for your faith with far more than your job. I was reading in the news yesterday about what's going on in Egypt. It talked about a a believer, a brother of ours, who one month ago, this guy's name is Makaram Diab, one month ago he was sentenced by the court of Egypt to six years in prison for insulting Islam. All the guy did was share his faith. Just shared his faith with a Muslim, and the court accused him of insulting Islam. Now he's going to spend six years in prison because of it. Now, by God's grace, at this time in America, most of us will not face arrest for our faith, but we will face ridicule. We will be ashamed publicly because of our beliefs and the stands that we take. I don't know if you were noticing in the news this week, there were a bunch of stories bouncing around about a guy named Dan Savage. Dan Savage leads a national anti-bullying campaign uh, to fight bullying against homosexuals, which we're all for that. We do not want anyone bullied, including homosexuals. But he was brought in to speak to a group of 3,000 high school students in Seattle. And in the midst of this speech, he went off on a vulnerable laced rant against the Bible, against the Bible as a source of bullying against homosexuals. And his point was basically, um, there is so much that we have rejected about scripture, like what it teaches about slavery and divorce. We haven't done that, but that's his contention. Certainly we should dismiss what it says about homosexuality. And, and at that moment that he said that, again, laced with profanity, about 30 students got up in the middle of 3,000 and walked out. And as they walked out, he began to belittle them. To actually, I can't even tell you what he said because it was, again, so full of vulgarity towards these people who took a stand for their faith. And he's the anti-bullying expert. Now, what is actually, yeah, it's, it's like the height of irony. What's actually sad is so, if you watch the video, as he's sitting there slamming Christianity and slamming those who would take a stand for their faith, almost everybody else claps. Almost the entire room gives a standing ovation to the guy. Well, graduating seniors, that's the world you're about to enter. This world is hostile towards your faith. It's hostile towards what you believe. 
And for many of you, you are going to experience culture shock in just a few weeks. You'll leave the bubble that is Texas A&M and you will head out into the real world. I remember when I did, I left Texas A&M where all of my close friends were believers and not just your run of the day, ordinary believers, but guys who were pursuing Christ, sold out for Jesus. I left all of that behind. I moved to Washington, D.C. and I joined an engineering company where almost everyone was a non-believer. And the majority of them found my beliefs and my values and my practices to be ridiculous. I was just kind of a running joke among them. Some of them were my friends. Some did not want to befriend me because of my beliefs. That's the world that you are headed into. So how do we respond? How do we relate to a hostile world? How do we respond when people mistreat us and ridicule us and persecute us for our faith? That's what Paul wants to talk about today. How do we respond to a hostile world? Paul's gonna give us four steps, four particular steps. Let's look at the first one. Look with me in our passage, starting in verse 14. Verse 14, Paul says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Let me define a couple words here. Bless. Bless means to ask God to show his favor to someone. That's what it means. If if the Bible tells you to bless someone, it means pray that God will bestow favor upon that person. Now, if we're praying for unbelievers, for unchristians, then what this means is that you are praying for their salvation. You are praying that God will bestow upon them the gift of belief in the gospel, the gift of eternal life. So that's what we're supposed to pray for uh, non-believers or for our enemies. It's the opposite of curse. To curse someone is to pray for God to pour out wrath on them, to destroy them or, or judge them. Paul wants us to pray for our enemies' salvation. That's the first step. We're to seek our enemies' salvation by praying for them. By praying that God would get hold of them and open their eyes to the truth of the gospel. And the verb there, to bless them, is continual present. It means you're to always do this. Every day you are to pray for the salvation of those who mistreat you and persecute you. It's it's a continual thing, and and really this is the most important step, because only God can bring about salvation in their life. But it does not end at prayer. Not only are you to pray for your enemies, but also you are to care about your enemies. Look at verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We should do that towards all people, but Paul is saying particularly towards your enemies, you are to do life with them. You are to enter into friendship with them and share in their joys, as long as you're not making moral compromises, as well as sharing in their sorrows. You're to come beside them and befriend them, share in life with them, so that they will be willing to listen to the message of the gospel from you. It's interesting, I was talking to some of our missionaries over in Italy, uh, Robbie and Rose Roberts. Uh, They've been over there for decades now, and they have found that on average... It takes nine years of committed friendship between a believer and an unbeliever, between that unbelieving Italian will be willing to consider the gospel. Nine years of doing life with them, of sharing in their joys and sorrows, laughing with them and crying with them. You have to do life with them. They have to see that you care about them before they will care about the message that you have. That's really the essence. They have to know that you care about them as a person before they will be willing to care about the gospel. They have to know that you're not just another salesman trying to sell them something, not just another politician trying to get a vote, but that you are a friend who will stick with them and thick and thin, in good and bad. 
And often, for those of, of you who do this, you, you know, often as you stick with them over the years, it will be in the moment when the floor falls out under their feet, when things get awful for them, when they lose their job, when someone they care about dies, when life gets really hard, they will look around and they will come to you because you are the one person who has genuinely loved them. And in that moment, when they come to you, that's your opportunity. You get to share the gospel with them because they know that you care about them. They're not just a project to you. You love them. So seek their salvation by praying for them, by caring about them, and finally by serving them. Look at verse 20. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, I'll be honest, the end of verse 20 has always been a problem for me. Heap burning coals on his head. (laughs) That sounds really mean, doesn't it? That's not really something you do out of love for someone. I always struggled with this. How does that fit verse 14? Well, then I studied it, and what I found is that in the ancient world, to have burning coals on your head was a metaphor for contrition or, or repentance. Actually, the Egyptians, the ancient Egyptians, used to walk around with trays of burning coals on their head as a symbol or sign of their repentance. And so what Paul is saying is, we should do good to those who mistreat us because as we do good to them, it heaps conviction upon them. It convicts them, it shames them in a good way. It shows them that they are wrong and you are right. You're right to follow Jesus. It convicts them so that God can get hold of them and open their eyes to the truth of the gospel. So verse 20 is redemptive. It's about doing good to lead someone to the gospel. Paul wants us to do everything we can to seek the salvation of those who mistreat us, who are our enemies, who are hostile to us. Jesus says it similarly, just uses different words. Jesus puts it this way in Luke 6. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Love your enemies. And remember what God means by love. Sacrificial devotion to the good of the other person. You are to be sacrificially devoted to the good of your enemies. That's radical. That is shocking. Um, In case you don't know, in the ancient world, among all of the Jews and all of the Gentiles, no one else ever said this. This is unprecedented in the ancient world. Love your enemies? What? No one was thinking that way. This is totally radical what Jesus lays out to this audience. Completely unprecedented. Shocking. At the end of last week's sermon, I got a really great email, an email from a girl who was wondering about what it means to love people and especially how we love people who are bad. What do we do with that? She asked, does God really expect us to love bad people? And let's take it to the extreme. What about someone like Hitler? Are you supposed to love, in other words, be sacrificially devoted to the good of a person like Hitler? Yes. Jesus is clear. He allows no exceptions. He doesn't put in parentheses other than guys like Hitler. It's everybody. Love your enemies. All of them. It's absolute. In other words, in the eyes of God, it is not enough just that we don't do bad to bad people. We are to love them. We are to be sacrificially devoted to their good. After all, that's how God has treated us, right? 
Romans 5, go back to Romans 5, what we studied last semester. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. God so loved us that while we were yet his enemies, to God, we were Hitler. We're no different than him. Just a slight difference of magnitude, not difference in personality, not difference in character, not difference in in what you are by nature. I'm a lot more like Hitler than I would care to admit deep down inside. Yet, even though I was God's enemy, he so loved me that he sacrificed his own beloved son to pay for my sins, to take my punishment on himself on the cross and die in my place. That's the good news of the gospel. That though we were enemies of God, God sent his son to die for our sins and then raised him from the dead and now offers to all of humanity forgiveness and eternal life if we'll simply receive it. If we'll simply say, yes, I want that. So should we love guys like Hitler? Yeah, because God does. And, and yeah, because we're really not that different. Yes, we are to love even bad people, even mean people. And that leads to the last question that she asked in her email, a really, really good question, insightful question. How can we really, truly love them if they do mean things? How do you love horrible people? How can you possibly do that? The answer is you can't. You cannot love bad people. You don't have it in you. I don't have it in me. I can't love someone like Hitler, but God can and God can through me. And that takes us back to Romans 8. We can do the impossible because God lives in us. His spirit dwells in us and he can do supernatural things through us as we depend upon him. So as you spend time in prayer, pray. God, through your spirit, give me your love for bad people. As you spend time in his word, pray. God, show me in your word how you see bad people. Read Romans 5. Come to see, as God does, that we're all bad people, and he loves us all. So spend time with the Spirit in prayer and with God in his word so that he can grow you in supernatural love for bad people. You cannot love evil people on your own, but God can love them through you if you'll allow God to do it. So we are to love our enemies. We're to love the most horrible people on earth, even those who mistreat us, persecute us, arrest us, and and kill us. We're to love them. Now, when we say that, when we study that, it often brings an objection from people, a a question. Well, what about, what about the Psalms? What about, in particular, the imprecatory Psalms? I don't know if you know what that word means, imprecatory. means to call down a curse. Maybe you've read some Psalms that seem to be in contradiction to Jesus and Paul. Don't seem to be saying the same thing. Here's one from David, Psalm 109. David had an enemy who had mistreated him, deceived him, been cruel to him. And so David prays to God of this enemy or towards this enemy, may his days be few, may another take his office, may his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Let there be none to extend kindness to him nor any to pity his fatherless children. He loved to curse, let curses come upon him. He did not delight in blessing, may it be far from him. What do you do with that? David's saying the exact opposite of Paul. Call down curses upon this guy who cursed me. What do you do with that? Well, the answer, very simply, in the summarized form, is progressive revelation. Progressive revelation is us saying the Bible was not dropped onto the planet Earth at one time. The Bible was written over thousands of years. 
And as the Bible was written, God progressively revealed to humanity how radically holy and loving he is. It took time to reveal the extent of God's awesomeness, of his goodness, of his greatness. By the time that David wrote the psalm some 3,000 years ago, David only had part of the answer, part of the picture. David knew that God is just. David knew that God loves justice. And Isaiah says, God loves justice. David knew that God loves when justice is done. When those who are wicked are punished and those who are righteous are exalted, God loves that. David knew that, so David was right to write Psalm 109. That's true, that's good. But David only had part of the answer. David had that which is good, Jesus brought that which is better. Jesus revealed the the next stage of God's revelation. Jesus revealed that as much as God loves justice, he loves something even more, and that's salvation. As much as God is willing to judge those who are evil, what really delights the heart of God is to save those who are evil. That's what pleases your God. Not justice, but redemption. That's what delights him. In Ezekiel, written hundreds of years after David, Ezekiel 33, 11, as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. That's what God wants. That wicked people would repent, not that they would be destroyed. Paul puts it this way in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 2, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's what God wants. He wants all men to be saved. That's what Jesus revealed. That as good as justice is, salvation is even better. And so as believers today in the era of the church, in the era after Jesus, should we pray the imprecatory psalms against our enemies? The answer is no. No, it was true, the imprecatory psalms are true, but they do not apply to those who are following Jesus. Because even though the imprecatory psalms are good and true, Jesus revealed a better way, and that's what he wants us to do. Not pray for curses upon our enemies, even though they deserve them, but to pray for love, grace, mercy. That's what Jesus desires of us. Now, let me apply that for you. This week, um, you may have noticed, was the one-year anniversary of the death of Osama bin Laden. Lots about that in the news. How are we as believers who are reading about loving our enemies to understand or think about the death of Osama bin Laden? Two principles here. Principle number one, rejoice that justice was done. The guy was a murderer and a terrorist, and in God's economy, it was good that justice was served. It was served by the right people. The government has the authority to do that. So we rejoice that justice was done, point one, but point two, we grieve that the guy wasn't saved because that's what God wanted. God does not delight in the death of any man, even a wicked man. What God wants is salvation. We should not delight that he died. We would have preferred that he would have heard the gospel and believed. That would have been ultimate victory. You kill the guy and he's a martyr. You save the guy and it's a defeat for terrorism worldwide. What kind of victory would that have been if the leader of terrorism came to embrace the love of Jesus Christ? That's real victory. That's what we should pray for. That's what we hope for. That's what we long for. Not the death and destruction of our enemies, but their salvation. Now let's get really practical. What does this look like in our lives? You have to ask yourself, who are my enemies? Who are the people, maybe not Osama bin Laden kind of bad, but who are the kind of people in my life that cause me pain and suffering? Maybe it's a neighbor who is always making me angry, just a really mean guy. 
Maybe it's a coworker who is in competition with you for a promotion or a job, and he's willing to do unethical things to get it. Uh, maybe it's somebody who's, who's witty, and they just cut you down in public for your faith. That happened to me a lot in high school. That happens a lot to us. What do you do towards those people? Well, what Jesus and Paul are saying is, towards those people, you respond to their evil with love. Love, sacrificial devotion to them. It means that every day you're praying for them. You're lifting them up to the Lord and asking, God, please save this person. He's so jerky to me. Please save him anyways. Please accomplish victory here by drawing him to salvation. We're to care for them, sharing in their joys and their sorrows, doing life with them, and we're to serve them. Day in and day out, even though they are mean to us, we're to serve them. That's love. Again, it's not something you can do in your own strength. Only God can do that. So what this really means is every day you're asking God, God, please help me to love my enemies. Love them through me because I can't do it without you. Every day praying that prayer. That's step number one. Step number two that Paul has for us. How do we respond to a hostile world? Look at verse 16. Paul says, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Back at the beginning, be of the same mind toward one another. What Paul is talking about is our unity with one another. Our unity as the body of Christ. What Paul is saying is that the second step in in standing strong in the midst of a hostile world is you have to present a united front. This group has to be united first. We have to be shoulder to shoulder, united with one another in love, united with one another in our devotion to follow Christ. When the world looks at the followers of Jesus Christ, they should see one body. Even though we may worship in many different churches and many different denominations, they should see one body of believers who love one another and stand with another and and link arms with one another. We must present a united front to this world. Stand strong together. And then in the rest of verse 16, Paul tells you how to do that. How do you build unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ? You do that through humility. Through humility, you'll notice in in two different phrases, he says basically the same thing. Do not be haughty in mind. Do not be wise in your own estimation. What he's saying to you is don't think too highly of yourself. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't think that you've got it all together that you're so great. Because when you do, when you buy into the lie of pride, it destroys unity. Pride is a poison for unity. And that pride destroys your witness to the world. It destroys the the witness that you have for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus put it this way in John 17, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. What Jesus is saying is the world knows that the gospel is true when they see unity here and humility here, when we are one with each other, when we resist pride, when we take prideful thoughts captive and reject them, that proves the truth of the gospel to the world. So instead of thinking too highly of ourselves, instead of giving in to prideful thoughts, instead Paul challenges us to associate with the lowly. And by the lowly, he's meaning people of a lower social class, whether they be poor or less educated or whatever it might be, those who in the eyes of the world are low, 
are worthy of little respect. We are to associate with those people. Those should be the people that the world sees us caring about and doing life with, not the people up here. Now, we may know the people up here, and we should love the people up here, and we should witness to the people up here, but these are the people that the world should see us really doing life with, those who are lowly, those who are of humble circumstances. We should humble ourselves to care for them and love them. That proves the truth of the gospel. It's interesting to me, um, this war going on in our nation right now between the 1% and the 99%. It's kind of funny and ironic to me because uh, in reality, um, everyone in the 99% wishes they were part of the 1%. So uh, everybody on this side of the battle wants to be over here. Um, But what I really want to see in this battle is somebody who is here in the 1% who wants to live over here. Somebody at the top of the earning bracket who chooses purposely to live with the 99%, to live a normal life among the lowly of the earth, that would be a beautiful thing. Because that's what God did, right? Think about God. He's he's kind of at the top of the 1%, right? He's God. He owns everything. So top of the 1%, and then he shows up among us as what? A carpenter, blue-collar tradesman, lowly, right in the middle of the pack. That's how God shows up among us. What I would love to see is those of us who have means, who are wealthy, maybe not in the 1%, but on that side of the spectrum who purposely choose to live here. This is where I'm, this is where I'm gonna do life. This is what's gonna be true of my life. The rest of the money, I'm gonna give it away. But I'm gonna associate with that which is humble. That is beautiful. That pleases God. That demonstrates to the world the truth of our message. So, We engage with a hostile world by being united with one another in humility and love. That proves the truth of our message. It stands strong in the midst of hostility. Step three that Paul lays out for us, we are to model integrity and peace. Look with me at verse 17, just the second half of the verse. Paul says, respect what is right in the sight of all men. Respect what is right or good in the sight of all men. Now, by respect, Paul means approve of it or practice it. Practice what is good in the sight of all people. Now, what what Paul is saying here is uh, this is not an excuse to give in to sin. This is not an excuse to say, well, the world says that this is good, and even though the Bible says that it's not, I should do that which the world says is good. No. That's not what this is. It's not an excuse for sin. What God is saying through Paul is in those things which are pleasing to God, if you look and see that the world agrees with that, that the world also calls it good, pour energy into that. Do that which is good in the sight of all people. That proves the truth of your gospel. Be a model of good deeds and integrity to this world. Let me give you one particular example, financial integrity. How you use your finances personally and as a business. You demonstrate a lot to the world about the gospel um, through how you handle your finances. Paul understood that. And so when Paul was collecting an offering from the Gentile churches to give to the poor saints in Jerusalem, he wrote this in 2 Corinthians 8 about his ministry. He was taking precaution so that no one will discredit us in our administration of this generous gift, for we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. What Paul is saying is, you know what? What I have found is that everyone in this world, not just believers, but unbelievers too, everyone agrees that theft is bad. 
that extortion is bad, that taking advantage of people is bad. And I I know it's bad from scripture, but I see that everyone agrees this is bad, so I'm gonna make absolutely sure that in the eyes of the world, I am absolutely above reproach with my finances. I am going to give no reason for the world to reject the gospel on account of my behavior. And so Christians, we should be a model to the world of absolute unflinching integrity with our finances. Not even the smallest compromise. Not even the smallest compromise in some form that you don't think anyone will ever see. No absolute financial integrity. That's how we display the truth of the gospel, by being models of good deeds and integrity. Second part that Paul lays out for us, don't just be a model of good deeds, but be a peacemaker. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. Now, it's interesting how Paul begins that statement. He clarifies it. He kind of qualifies it there at the beginning of verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, what Paul is saying is I know that much of the time peace will not be in your control. You live in a hostile world. If you follow Christ, the world is going to hate you. And so peace may not be possible for us. These days in America, it's generally possible. In a lot of other countries, it's not. Paul's admitting that. You can't compromise on the gospel. You can't compromise on truth. So you may be persecuted. But that said, as far as it depends upon you, seek to be a peacemaker to all people. Seek peace at all times with all people. Do anything you can to seek peace. I like to apply that, think about that by, um, by challenging myself to be the opposite of my toddlers. I have twins, um, toddlers, and if you know toddlers, you know that uh, toddlers are always ready for a fight, always ready for a fight. It could be over anything. It could be over something big, but it's usually over something small. I do not want those shoes. I want those shoes over there. Okay, fine, you can have those shoes. I don't want to go outside. I want to stay, you're going to love it outside. Why not? No, they're going to make a battle over everything. Toddlers make a battle over everything and what Paul is saying is don't be like that. Don't be like that. Don't be looking for a fight. No, if it is not an absolute essential like the gospel, then seek peace. Do everything you can to promote peace. Don't make big issues out of little issues. Don't demand your rights. Don't seek conflict. Instead, do everything you can to diffuse conflict by practicing love in good deeds. As you do that, as you love people and do good deeds and serve them, you will diminish conflict. That's what God wants. He wants us to be the peacemakers of the earth. His people should be the people that everyone in the world goes to to ask, how does peace work? We'll tell you. We should be the peacemakers. Finally, fourth step that Paul lays out for us. How do we live in a hostile world? Be patient. Look with me. First part of verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. And then verse 19, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That word vengeance, vengeance, biblically speaking, is an appropriate payback for evil. It's appropriate punishment for evil that was done to you. Vengeance is not you go hurt some good person. That's not vengeance, that's just evil. Vengeance is someone hurt you and now you are going to pay them back in kind. You are gonna give them justice. Vengeance is justice. It is appropriate and yet Paul says, don't take it. 
Do not claim vengeance, even though it is your right, humanly speaking, do not take it. Instead, be patient and leave justice to God. Leave vengeance to God. Literally, leave room for the wrath of God. Let God be judge. Let him do justice in his time and in his way. And instead, be a model of love and forgiveness, of grace and mercy. That's our part. Now, I do need to clarify here. Paul is talking to us as individual believers. He is not talking to governments. He's not talking to governmental authority. We're going to talk in great detail about that next week. We can look ahead, just if you want to look at this, chapter 13. You'll notice verse 3. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Then do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it, that is government, is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For government does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. What Paul is saying is human governments have God-ordained authority to do justice, to enact vengeance. When America put Osama bin Laden to death, that is just in God's eyes. That's right. America has that authority. We don't as individuals. Paul's talking in chapter 12 to individual believers. We are not to cry for justice. We are not to cry for vengeance. Instead, we are to offer forgiveness and grace and mercy. Now, that's a hard thing. That's a really hard thing. Everything in us wants justice. We go to movies, guys. We love movies that are all about justice and vengeance. That resonates with us. We love justice. So how do we get past that and give forgiveness instead? When I struggle to give forgiveness, I think of a professor of mine at seminary named Celestin. Celestin was Rwandan. And back in 1984, in the, the genocide that broke out between the warring tribes of Rwanda, five of his family members were murdered. Five of them. Bad day for him. He was a pastor. He was trying to bring love and peace in the midst of that. And they put five of his family members to death. He came to seminary, got his doctorate, and then started a ministry of reconciliation to Rwanda, to the, the two tribes that were at war and that ended up killing his family. He went back to them to bring forgiveness and reconciliation. That's incredible to me because by all human standards, Celestin deserves vengeance. He deserves to have the murderers of his family brought out and executed in front of him. That would be justice, but he says no. I'm going to leave that to God. I am going to be a light of forgiveness. And I'm going to pray because I know that as much as God loves justice, what would really please God is if those murders would brought, were brought out and converted and became my brothers in Christ. That's what would make God really happy and delighted. And so he is a minister of forgiveness in Rwanda. I actually saw last week he was up in Sudan preaching that same message to the warring tribes of Sudan. And so when I struggle to forgive somebody who has frustrated me, I think of Celestin because I think if he can forgive the guys who murdered his family, I can forgive the dude that frustrated me. Pretty small stuff compared to what this guy's doing. Just think of Celestin. Think of what God has done through that man. And then think about the ultimate example of, of forgiveness, Jesus. He who is God, who is perfect, who is innocent, is crucified by us, really, by sinners like us, and then he forgives and extends eternal life. We can forgive because God has forgiven us. It is hard, but God can do it through you. So, as we engage with a hostile world, 
As we interact with those who are our enemies, who hate us, who don't like us, Paul wants us to respond to them in love, in good deeds. He summarizes it in verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What he's saying is when the world is evil to you, when the world is wicked to you and hateful to you, do not become like them. Do not be overcome by evil. Do not become evil yourself. Do not want payback against them. Instead, overcome that which is evil through good by being a light of goodness and grace and righteousness to them. Towards the end of the Civil War, there were obviously a lot of hard feelings on both sides of that battle. In the North, there were a lot of people who hated the Confederates because they'd lost friends and family members in that battle in that war. And so Abraham Lincoln was speaking one day to a group of Northerners about how we need to be willing to forgive the South, forgive those who had um, been at war with them. And, And the crowd was not happy about that. They were not thrilled about this message of forgiveness. And Lincoln responded to them by saying, do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? That's, that's the answer here. Do I not destroy my enemies by making them my friends? Do you want to destroy those who are your enemies? The single best way to do it is to bring them to Christ. You bring them to Christ and they're no longer your enemy. They will never be your enemy. Now they are your friend. Now they're your partner in extending the gospel to the world. That's ultimate victory. Justice is a little victory. Salvation is a massive victory. So pray and work. Hope for that. That our enemies, that those who attack us and mistreat us would be saved. Now, I want to end by answering a question that's going on in many of your minds right now. It's a question that I struggled with this week. I read this passage and I struggled because as I read it, I realized, okay, back in high school, some in college, a little bit up in D.C., I had some enemies in my life. I had some of that going on. But these days... As a pastor here in Grace Bible Church in College Station, Texas, I don't feel like I have any enemies. I, I just don't feel that way. I don't feel like there's anybody who is trying to destroy me other than Satan, but human enemies, I don't feel that. Any people I know who are my enemies. And so this passage doesn't feel like it applies to me. And I was sharing that with my wife last night. My wife is, ob- is often much more insightful about the word of God than I am. And she responded to me and she said, you know, how I look at that passage is basically argument from, from greater to lesser. If God is telling me that I have to love my enemy, then surely I have to love the guy who annoys me. The person who frustrates me, the girl who irritates me, the person who embarrasses me or bores me or takes up my time, the person I really don't want to spend time with isn't my enemy. I just don't like them very much. If God expects me to be sacrificially devoted to my enemy's good, then surely I have to love this person. And for you, many of you, that's going to be the application here. You don't have enemies yet. You don't have a lot of enemies, maybe one or two people, but not a lot of enemies in your life, but you have a lot of people you don't like very much. You have a lot of people that you'd really rather not see, that you're kind of annoyed by, irritated by, frustrated by. What God is telling you is, if he expects you to love your enemies, then these people, you're without excuse. You gotta love them. You gotta put their needs above your own. Do the same things towards them. Seek their salvation. Pray for them. Care about them. Serve them. That's hard. You won't wanna do it. That's okay. God will do it through you. So this week, as as you're seeking to apply this passage, if you have enemies in your life, then just apply it straight up. If you don't have enemies yet, then pray that God will bring to your mind someone who is just frustrating, irritating, annoying, boring to you. Bring them to your mind and show you practical ways that you can extend love and charity and good deeds to them this week. That's what God wants us to do. If you've been 
paying attention last week and this week, you know, basically, how are we to treat every human being on this planet? Love. Whether it's us, whether it's outside these walls, whether it's other believers or unbelievers, our enemies, whoever it might be, every person on earth, God says, deserves our love, our sacrificial devotion to their good. So who is it that's not getting that in your life? Think about that person. Look for ways to love them this week and then pray with me because we're going to need God's help to do it. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you that you are a God who loves. We thank you in 1 John. It says that you are love. God is love. It is your nature. It is everything you are. You are loving in every way. We thank you and praise you for that, Lord, because if you were not loving, we would be lost. We deserve your wrath. We deserve your punishment. We deserve to be destroyed by you. But because you are a God who loves those who are not worthy of love, Lord, we have hope. You sent your own son. You sacrificed your beloved son for us. Thank you for that, Lord. And Father, we lift up any person in this room who has not yet received that gift of love. Please open their eyes to understand your love is not something they need to earn. It's not something they need to work for. It is a free gift. All they need to do is simply believe that Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead and your love is theirs for all eternity. And for those of us who have received that love, Father, we need your help. We are not by nature loving people. By nature, we are selfish and prideful and sinful. Lord, we need your help. Please, Lord, help us to love those who mistreat us. Help us to love those who irritate and annoy us. Help us, Lord, to to pass on, on any rights we have to vengeance or justice and instead offer to them grace and mercy. I pray, Father, let this not just be something that that convicts us on an intellectual level, but Lord, show us this week practical, concrete things that we can do to love those who are hostile towards us. I pray, Father, for every person in this room, please show us something that we can do this week to demonstrate your love to those who don't yet know you. Thank you, Father, that you are the God of love. Help us to be people who love well. I pray once again that as the world sees Grace Bible Church, that they would see a community of people who love well, who love radically well, shockingly well. I pray, Father, do whatever it takes to grow us to love well. In the name of your Son, who has loved us so much, in his name we pray, amen. God bless you guys.